Welcome to the Insect Podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. This is part two of our three-part series entitled Strength-Based Advocacy and Collaboration. In today's episode, Dr. Gregory Luskin and MSEC's Georgia McCowan are joined by Dr. Pamela Fenning. The trio discussed the importance of shifting curriculum and strategies to meet military-connected students where they are academically and behaviorally, as well as socially, emotionally. They also discuss opportunities to leverage multi-tiered systems of support in the process of assisting military-connected students and their families. Welcome everyone to the MSEC podcast. We're so excited to have you here with us. My name is Georgia McCown and I'll be your guest host today. I'm the Director of Planning, Analysis and Evaluation at MSEC. And today I'm joined by my guest host, Dr. Greg Leskin. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and serves as the Director for Military and Veteran Families Program at the University of California, Los Angeles, um, in partnership with Duke University's National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. Greg will be serving as my co-host today as we talk more with our guest, Dr. Pamela Fenning. Pamela Fenning is a professor in the School Psychology Program at Loyola University, Chicago, and a licensed school and clinical psychologist in Illinois and co-chair of the School Psychology Program. She serves as the Associate Dean for Research in Loyola School of Education. Her research, clinical and teaching interest focus on multi-tiered systems of supports, particularly in the behavioral realm, the development and implementation of equitable discipline policies and practices, and support of military families and students. She has edited or co-authored four books on youth sexual health, school-based application of childhood psychopathology, support of military youth, and equitable discipline with minoritized youth with disabilities. If you listen to the first podcast in our series, you'll recognize her name um, as the author of the book that I recommended as my one resource suggestion um, at the end of our session. Welcome, uh, Dr. Luskin and Dr. Fenning. We're so excited to have you with us today. Thanks, Georgia. It's great to be with you. Um, Good morning also to Dr. Fenning. Good morning to you both. Such a pleasure and honor to be here today. So as we get started, Dr. Fenning, what led you to write your book, School Supports for Students and Military Families? Right, so I have the pleasure of living in a community where our schools serve a percentage of military students. And so my daughters grew up side by side with many students that were part of the military and who moved multiple times. And I was very awestruck by the resiliency and the strength of military families who we had the good fortune to come to know and to befriend. I often tell the stories many times students in the military would be at my house playing and you know, we'd say it's time to go and my kids would be dawdling around or whatever. And then the students and military families were just like ready to go. I mean, they were just ready, packed up, ready to go. And I just have had the honor of interacting in some small ways and maybe larger ways with um, families in the military. And I'm a school psychologist and clinical psychologist by training. And it really dawned on me that we could be doing so much more in my field of school psychology and supporting military families as a transition. And and really, it very much struck me that the service member gives so much to our country, but also there's family members and there's partners and there's 
children and students that give so much as well. And it was very eye-opening for me um, and really just an honor living in the community that I reside in. So that really prompted me for both personal and professional reasons to work on the book and think about how we can do a, a more thorough job in supporting military families with our training in school psychology specifically. Yeah, that really makes sense. That's a logical trajectory, I think. As a former educator myself, that's what drew me to the work was working with military connected students and seeing their experiences in schools firsthand in my classroom. Um, and so it's it's nice to hear about other folks who have been brought in from the civilian community or the education community into this space um, and making that support external to military connected folks and then uh, getting involved in and sharing what you've found with other educators and other folks in the community. What do you hope educators and families take away from your book and other work? I think for me, the number one take home message is how resilient and strong military families and students are. And that there's so much that we in the civilian population can learn from military families and students to do better in our own lives. And so, while I do think that there are often times when military families may need additional support in our schools and in our educational settings because of frequent transitions and moves and such, and perhaps mental health supports as well, I think there's so much that we can learn about the strengths and resiliency of military families. So I think the biggest takeaway is coming away with a strength-based perspective rather than a deficit perspective that I think, unfortunately, I think sometimes um, we may take as educators um, without the knowledge or without the ability to interact with families from military environments. Thanks, Dr. Fanny. I really appreciate your perspective on a strength-based approach. I really believe that aligns well with military families' self-identity, so I think that's a really good frame. And I do, and I'm also very interested and excited to talk about multi-tiered systems of support as a way to support military families who are transitioning and across the, the education system. So I did want to ask, what are some takeaways for tier one? That is the support for all students that military families and educators may want to know. Yeah, so I think the main, I guess, suggestion I would have around uh, multi-tiered systems of support is thinking about what students are receiving is what we would call tier one support. So that would be supports for all students. Sometimes uh, we often think of tier two supports as supports for some students and tier three supports are supports for the students who may have the most individualized needs or needs for individualized support. So when I think about um, multi-tiered systems of support and key takeaways, I think about, you know, what kind of instruction, either it's behavior instruction, it's academic instruction, it's social emotional instruction for all students. And because um, military students in the military often will move frequently as part of military service, sometimes military students may miss out on what we would call all kid supports or tier one supports. So that might be something like academic screening. So in a lot of school districts I've worked with over the years, they do something called universal academic screening. They do a short reading passage. It's called curriculum-based measurement. They do it at the beginning of the year. They have the students read a short passage and we can get some really good information and data from that very short 
interaction. But a lot of times those, what we call screenings happen in September, October, they happen again in January and they happen again in March. You know, school districts vary on how frequently they do this. But sometimes families in the military, because of frequent moves, will miss out on what we call those tier one or all kid universal academic screenings. So they miss out on the opportunity to have more early intervention and supports. So, you know, I would suggest that, you know, families to get some information from the school districts they move into about the tier one supports or all kids supports. Same with behavior supports. A lot of schools are implementing what we call school-wide positive behavior supports, and that means they're teaching those behavior expectations. Hey, what do I expect of you when you walk down the hallway? What do I expect with you from you as students when you're interacting with us as educators? And a lot of times those kinds of school-wide behavior supports are teaching directly those expectations. They happen in the beginning of the year, and sometimes military students will miss out on that. So, so I think it's really important for kind of, you know, families families and for students and us advocates as well to really make sure that our students in the military are exposed to whatever behavior universal kinds of supports tier one supports it also might come with social emotional instruction or social emotional learning it happens periodically in a lot of places so so I think it's really important to think about you know are our military students receiving the tier one supports that all students should be receiving? And if not, how do we as mental health service providers and schools and educators make sure that our families are looped into those supports? Um, the other thing I think is a key takeaway is part of tier one or universal supports is we think about our students being exposed to core instruction, meaning that foundation, that tier one. Do we have a good basal reading series, for example, in elementary? And so one question I think a takeaway is, are the students being exposed to scientifically based instruction? We can see sometimes with frequent moves that military families and students may not be exposed to those universal tier one, just solid foundation of reading supports, for example. I'm using reading a lot as an example because that's where we often see things pop up in elementary school. But, you know, are students being exposed to those tier one core reading supports? And if not, what strategies and supplemental education instructions should we be providing? Um, so again, it's not always the case. Sometimes students do need additional supports for groups of students, tier two, individual students at tier three. But it's worth asking the questions as far as what have our students been exposed to that all students are exposed to that they might be missing out just with the simple act of moving uh, a school district, for example. Great advice. I really uh, so appreciate um, the reminder, the awareness that all military kids, we should be aware of uh, making sure that they are kind of touching on all those tier one academic, behavioral, and core reading supports uh, throughout school. Uh, thanks so much for that uh, advice. And I think for many folks, um, there are mixed feelings when their child is identified as needing extra support. Uh, can you describe the features of a strength-based resiliency approach within a multi-tiered framework? And why is this approach critical when providing support to military families and children? That is such a great question, Dr. Leskin. I think um, one of the things that have underscored for me with, you know, just the beautiful experiences I've had in the interaction with, with military students is fa and with families is starting with a place of strength and resiliency and not going already to thinking a student has a deficit. 
So while it may be true that a student might meet a criteria for something like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, you know, I think we really need to think about a strength-based perspective and thinking also about how do we in education modify our instruction and our strategy to really meet the students where they are. Most military students do very well academically, do very well with the enormous moves, with the, the numbers of challenging transitions. And so often, you know, I think we need to ask ourselves in schools whether are we meeting military students where they are? Have they received the proper education in other schools they might have been in? And start from there. So I think it's a shift in our thinking as educators. It's more as adults, we're changing our thinking versus asking military students to change in any way or to think about, oh my God, this is an automatic deficit because this is a student in the military and we're already coming at this deficit perspective when in fact, it's really the students coming to us with enormous strengths and enormous assets and talents. And so when we kind of think um, with that mindset, we ask ourselves in education, how might we adapt our curriculum to meet military students if maybe they weren't exposed to some type of instruction in their prior school district? Or we're all doing something a little different, right, in our school districts and states. States are really the ones that have the majority of running and implementing education. Every state's going to be different. So what I really love about our possibility of multi-tiered systems of support or MTSS, and I think we do have a long way to go in moving this from the thinking behind it to the actual reality of implementing it with full in schools, it allows us to focus on, you know, where might we teach and reinforce skills where students may need more support. So certainly it, it makes so much sense for, you know, families having mixed feelings when their students are identified as potentially needing extra support. But I often think of it as, you know, we all have areas of strength and weaknesses. I've seen where multi-tiered systems of support has played out a little bit better, honestly, and then in other places, and there's an intervention time. So it's not that students necessarily have this huge deficit, but they just might need a little bit more bolster and strength-based uh, support. Whereas, you know, in one case, it might be academics, in another case, it might be behavior, in another case, it might be social-emotional. And I also go back to this idea of, you know, how can we work with our schools and military families really advocate for our core foundation, that tier one again, how can that be as strong as possible so that we're meeting the needs of the students in the general education setting as much as possible before we really quickly go to, oh my gosh, this is an internalized deficit or this is a disability, quote unquote, per se. So it's really, I think, I can understand certainly where, where families uh, may feel this way, um, but I think if we think of it as just a need for additional support, not because it's an internal deficit of the student, there's so many strengths, but it might just be opportunities for instruction. It might be opportunities for social emotional support. It might be our context and our school, we also have to go and meet the military students and families. It's not always the military students and families always changing to come into how the, we might do things in any particular elementary or middle or high school, if, if that makes some sense. I love that so much. And it's a shared responsibility. So it really makes sense. It reminds me of when I was a classroom teacher, um, we were, it was third grade. So of course we were teaching the, the multiplication tables, right? And one of my students said, well, at my old school, we, we memorized them this way. And it, it was so brilliant and such like a great way to to conceptualize something rather than um, the way that, you know, my curriculum documents or whatever said to teach it. And so 
looking at that strength space and saying, we don't all have to do this the same way. Um, we can do it the way that makes sense for each individual student. And so um, letting families be experts on their own kids and, and letting kids be experts on what they know and, and to share that with other people, that really makes sense. Um, our audience is familiar with the aspects of the military lifestyle that can make school and education challenging, like frequent relocations and transitions related to deployment. What are some ways that families and educators can advocate for themselves as they move across school districts and state lines? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, I think it can be helpful for families to know that the military interstate compact has been adopted in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And honestly, I think a lot of military families know this, but I'll be honest, I think a lot of school districts may not know this. And there is a lot of flexibility, um, very much intentionally and very much needed. So I think, you know, one of the things that military families can do is really to, you know, unfortunately, sometimes educating us in schools to say, hey, there's this military interstate compact and there should be flexibility in graduation requirements. I had a friend of my daughter, you know, with math placements, it doesn't have to be X test that requires a math placement. I mean, she was well advanced in math. And so there might be other ways to assess math or there might be, you know, flexibility um, with, you know, if a student might not be there for the math assessment. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be placed in the higher level math course. You know, we need to have other flexible ways of assessment. Um, and so also with special education, if uh, one's child has an IEP, individualized education, education plan. We need to allow flexibility, the sending state, we can allow that IEP to stay in place and make sure that we provide services quickly and not languish and not let services take longer because we think we need to do a million evaluation or our own assessments. Yes, we might need to update the assessment, but we can adopt that IEP. So I think, you know, families, our military families are so amazing and wonderful and they know what we've attempted to do in education. But I think a lot of times we don't know that particularly in a any community, but maybe in a community where there aren't a lot of military families and the military family may be one or two and it's a completely new scenario for some school districts. It doesn't absolve our responsibility in education to know these things, but I think that's part of the advocacy. Um, I think military families, you know, unfortunately may, may need to take on, and I think we need to do a better job educating ourselves in schools about supports. Um, and since every state has a primary responsibility for education, although certainly we have federal laws in place for students, um, checking the State Department of Education website for guidance as far as how special education procedures, as one example, might take place. So I'm in Illinois. We use multi-tiered systems of support for special education identification, for learning disabilities identification. There's multiple ways that that is done across every state. So each state is going to have their own regulations. And so checking that State Department of Education website for guidance may be helpful because then the family has a bird's eye view of how the state handles, for example, special education processes and procedures. Um, in one particular school or school district, the director of special education and school psychologist, such as myself, would be someone potentially very useful to reach out to when you suspect maybe your son or daughter may have a disability, may need a special education evaluation. It doesn't necessarily mean that they'll meet the criteria for special education services and supports, but it should mean that we need to respond as school districts and we need to respond 
to any request a family makes, that request should be in writing because there are federal rights under Individuals with Disability Education Act or IDEA or the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA. Um, and families have every right to request an evaluation, every right. And that can be put in writing to the director of special education. There's a time frame in which we need to respond. There's some nuances. Um, if one is in a military, a DOD, Department of Defense school, there's some nuances around that um, versus a civilian school. But most um, children in the military are in civilian schools. Um, and so, you know, we have a, a responsibility in schools to respond. Um, and so there's also um, advocacy groups, such as a group called Equip for Equality. They're a nationally funded group that provide advocacy and support for families. So that's another ad avenue. So, so um, I think it can be incredibly challenging. And families that I work with, even that are not connected in the military and aren't moving as frequently, have a lot of um, challenges just navigating this complex system we've set up um, but getting and working through your classroom teacher can also be super helpful uh, as well because that classroom teacher is going to know your child better than i would likely as a school psychologist for example as first blush um, but i think there are supports um, that are available and families have every right to utilize them oh, every right indeed and those are really great ideas, Dr. Fenning, for advocating for our students. And I just wanted to ask, uh, sometimes a military-connected family and, and their children's educators can feel stuck in their uh, current system. How can military families and educators advocate for educational supports through existing and pending legislation, particularly the ESSA, Military Student Identifier, military interstate compact uh, and the expected reauthorization of individual with uh, disabilities education act. Yes, that must be so hard because again, you know, we are one United States, but then within the United States, there are state, you know, rollouts and then there's individual districts that do things very differently. And even in a school in one district, they do things, schools are going to do things differently. You know, I, I think one thing is uh, advocacy organizations such as this, you know, uh, this Military Child Education Coalition can be super helpful. Um, I also uh, remember that military families have a voice that is so important to us in education, and we have so much to learn from military families about better mental health supports, better academic supports, better instructional supports. Military families have a bird's eye view of education in a way that most of us do not, often seeing and working and networking, but attending multiple school districts um, that, you know, they have a lot to share military families about how to make educational both more equitable and accessible for all. So, for example, the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, now requires that states um, have disaggregated data by academics by military family status. So that means that the data has to be broken down by military identifiers, and that data can be super helpful as an advocacy tool. But what I do find is a lot of times our state education agencies are very overwhelmed, districts are overwhelmed. So I I think you know military families can do a lot to really advocate for that data to be used in a much more helpful way for us so that we know how we're doing we have a responsibility to know how we're doing in supporting the academics of military families and we can do so by actually using data that is required to be collected leveraging folks that 
work with data often, such as school psychologists often will work with data, they'll often work with school-wide data, they'll often work with data at the district level. There should be someone in our state education agency that works with that data. So really um, kind of leveraging some of the existing legislation, but to make it more user-friendly and actually more realize how more helpful it could be in rolling it out. The Individuals with Disability Education Act hasn't been reauthorized since 2004, so military families have so much to say. We expect that to be reauthorized. We don't know when, um, but military families have so much to say to really um, think to help us all collectively to do a better job to support students, particularly students who may need additional academic, mental health, social, emotional, and or supports and or might be identified as having a disability. So, so I think um, advocacy and collaboration, not on one's own, it shouldn't be an undue burden for military families to do all this advocacy on their own with so much that they're already doing to serve our country and our world, but to collaborate with others and organizations and military um, supportive sponsoring organizations, um, advocacy at the state and federal level. Um, I think at every state in Illinois in particular, I know we have a liaison to support military families. And so working with that individual, and I guess I would just, you know, conclude here in, in a nutshell by saying military families have such an important voice and see things that none of the rest of us have seen who are in a civilian community. Um, and can advocate for themselves, but also advocate for so many that might frequently move or miss school or lose instruction time and such. Um, so that's kind of what I would say about that. Thank you both so much for being here with us today. This is such a critical conversation um, for educators and families and other stakeholders as they think about leveraging multi-tiered systems of support in their process of, of supporting military-connected students. For our listeners, there will be more details in our show notes about work from Dr. Venning and work from Dr. Luskin and how you can learn more about what they're up to and how they're supporting military-connected students. Lastly, I want to highlight that we have one more podcast coming in this series, uh, specifically about identifying and working through harmful behaviors in youth and how that can be especially helpful as we support military-connected students. So thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this journey, and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. Please tune in for our final episode of this three-part series, Strength-Based Advocacy and Collaboration. Until next time, live a great story.